This is The Common Health from the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security, engaging senior leaders on questions of how to address our common health security challenges in this post-COVID moment. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Sandro Galea, an epidemiologist, an author, a physician, emergency physician, and the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health, a native of Malta. His work has spanned quite a range of issues, mental health in the military and among populations post 9-11 in New York. He has authored many books that are aimed at a more general readership, which is unusual and very commendable. He's come out with this new, new book, published early December, as the author of Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberable Time, Thank you, Sandro, for joining us, and congratulations on this new book. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. The book is unusual. We'll get into this. It's refreshing. It's provocative. It raises many questions. To my mind, it's a call to action to the field of public health for greater levels of introspection, self-criticism, humility in the post-COVID moment. And it's written by one of the field's luminaries. So in a way, it's a sort of soft nudge, a soft indictment coming from within the field itself. It's also unusual because, as I understand from reading the book, it originated in a weekly newsletter that Dr. Sandro authored throughout the pandemic titled The Healthiest Goldfish. So it knits together ideas that emerged out of that and then knit together into a bigger argument in this book. It's also very timely, I think, because of course, we now have across campuses in the United States, the eruption of debate on governance of universities uh, that are accused of being anti-woke, anti-DEA campaigns are erupting in the wake of the October 7th massacre of Israelis by Hamas and what's happened in the war in Gaza. Afterwards, of course, we've had all of the controversies around anti-Semitism and Islamophobia to have now this book, which is really coming within the field of public health, saying we need to pause for a moment and take a hard look at what happened within this field in the course of COVID. It's long overdue, I believe, and, and very promising. So the lead proposition, I'm gonna ask you to explain this lead proposition. The lead proposition, as I understand it, is that public health during COVID slid into illiberalism, and in that process lost the trust of the public, indeed stirred active distrust of the field. The field in a way lost its bearings. It's a bit adrift at an inflection point it needs to acknowledge the problem and think hard about how to recover trust and to get back to core values and practices. The first question then for you, Sandro, please explain to me what you mean by illiberalism. What is that? What are the component elements of this? And then we can talk about what is it that in incented or drove the field in that direction? So let's first start with what is that illiberalism that you are most concerned about? Well, first of all, thank you for the really excellent summary of what the book is about and why the book exists. I feel like the past couple of minutes, anybody should just listen to what you said about the book and that captures the book better than I've heard anybody else capture it. So thank you for that. I'll start by addressing the first part of the question, the illiberalism, which is really, as you correctly said, the concept I use to knit together these ideas. So I mean liberalism in the classic sense, really coming from enlightenment values that come from the sort of Western European Renaissance Reformation period. 
and I'm clear in the book, I'm, there, I think there are many other global traditions that have similar values, but this is explicitly grounded in that. And you know, liberalism refers to fundamental tenets of individual autonomy, which often in our conversation we end up calling things like human rights, the reliance on empiricism and reason rather than reliance on ideology and belief, and a desire to achieve reform and improvement of society gradually building on empiricism and reason. So that's what I mean by liberalism. And there are many different definitions of liberalism that people have used, but I think they broadly all fall in that bucket. I'm careful in the book to say, and I want to make sure I'm clear here, that by liberalism, I don't mean Democrat. And uh, I very explicitly don't mean Democrat. I don't mean yeah. the, the simple reduction of that word in the American political calculus, where these, these words have acquired blue or red hues. In fact, there are elements of the liberal and understanding of liberalism that actually are cut across parties. For example, the centering of individual autonomy tends to be much more on the right of the political spectrum than on the left of the political spectrum in this country. So I do mean liberalism as a core set of beliefs about what should unite us as humans and how we should advance society. Centering autonomy, building on empiricism, reform through reason, and putting aside ideology. Now, let's bring it to what happened during COVID. And you asked me the question, so what pushed us into illiberalism? Well, I think I'm clear about this in the book, that I think what pushed us into illiberalism was a fairly difficult set of circumstances. Number one, of course, it was the pandemic itself, which was unprecedented in the lifetime of any of us, although it was certainly precedented in history. At a time, and in this country, I think this was a critical factor, which was the beginning of an election year in the U.S. political season, when the sitting president, Donald Trump, took a position that the pandemic was an imposition on his efforts at re-election and used the world's biggest megaphone, really, to push back against core facts about the pandemic and to promote treatments that I think now any reasonable person realizes were really not treatments and in fact were harmful. Now, I want to be careful not to put too much at the feet of any one human or even at Donald Trump's feet, but I do think it's important because I think what public health felt in a moment of crisis, that there was a need to break through and to push back against such a powerful voice. And as a result, much of what public health did then pushed public health into its own brand of ideology an extreme way of acting, in no small part in reaction to what was happening in the political space. So, and I try to explain this in the book, and I try to explain from a place of compassion for public health. And as you said in your prelude, which I thought was very good, I do write this book from a place of love for the work of public health, from a place of admiration for everybody who works in public health, but also from a place that says we do our work better through self-examination. One of the things that struck me in reading the book and trying to understand what you meant by the drift into illiberalism was you, you're pretty blunt at different points in this book in saying, yes, there was this dynamic interaction in the midst of great fear and stress. Fear and stress fueled bad behavior all across the board. Public health was no exception to that. The interplay between a populist nationalism and Trump leadership and denialism and quack science introduced into that also triggered sort of reactions that moved public health in a bad direction. 
And as you describe it, as I understand, you were saying that there was rising intolerance within the field. There was a certain innate elitism that predated COVID that insulated itself from consideration of what it meant for those who less well-endowed and inadequate consideration of trade-offs when you're talking about school closures, lockdowns, economic burdens, and the like, a certain groupthink that settled in and a certain rigidity, i.e. fix upon a single solution, not very skilled at weighing trade-offs in non-health societal sectors like education, employment, economic, and a sort of tendency to stifle dissent and debate. That's a serious package of phenomenon that kind of got wrapped into this. And I think we haven't seen that critique in this form from within this field yet. So let me comment on a couple of things. Once again, I think you capture really well the book, and I'm grateful to you for doing that. So let me start with the critique of the book, then I'll talk about the critiques in the book. So one of the charges, I think, against a book like this, which have been sort of written about it, is, well, you're challenging public health, but in fact, other actors, political actors, were as much as, if not more, to blame in, in this difficult moment. And my response to that is very simple. I'm not exonerating other actors, but I'm just not writing about that. It's not for me to write. And and, and I will let others write about how politics failed us, how media failed us in this moment. I'm not blind to that, but I actually think the fact that other sectors also had their own failures does not obviate the failures of public health. So that's point A. Now let's talk about public health. Why should public health behave or be better when these other sectors also had their feelings. I suppose I came into public health. You mentioned earlier I'm a physician by training and then I did my doctorate in public health. I came to public health always feeling like public health has a privileged position to be entrusted with uh, promoting the health of the public. And with that privilege comes responsibility. And part of that responsibility is always keeping our heads about us, always being the adults in the room, so to speak. And the fact that the political space or the media space may have had their own failings does not excuse our failings. So the book really is about that. The book says, let us think about where we went wrong. Now, you captured a lot of this, Steve, in in, in your summary, but just to highlight a few, I do think that we leaned into rigidity of thought. We leaned into enforcing of orthodox perspectives. We leaned into a focus on health as the only thing that matters, as though people live to be healthy and forgetting that people are healthy in order to live. And we did not allow space for discussion and debate, essentially casting anybody who dared voice opposition as being an enemy of health and an enemy of people. And that that's resulted in this moment in public health for a couple of year period where anything that deviated from orthodoxy was so roundly criticized and challenged as to essentially make it very unappealing for anybody to try to go against the orthodoxy and still want to be considered a member in good standing of the community of public health thinkers and doers. And that is a mistake. And one last thing you said, which is when we started talking, is about the lack of trust in public health. And, and, and I, try to, I try to tease out this paradox in the book that in many respects, COVID was public health's finest moment, right? About a million, 1.1 million Americans died, but many more millions could have died were it not for the rapid arrival at vaccines, rapid, relatively rapid arrival at testing, efforts at screening, at control and all that. But instead, there's been about a 25-point drop in trust 
in science, medicine, and public health. So the paradox, I say, well, how could that be? We actually objectively did well. So how could there be this last loss of trust? And of course, the answer is that people are much like people don't evaluate the economy simply based on economic indicators. People evaluate how they feel about it. People are evaluating public health by how they feel about it. And people sense this illiberalism and that rankles. And that has resulted in a loss of trust that will have real implications for the coming decades about the good work that public health wants to do. Thank you. I think that's a profound point. You know, in reading this book, it became also clear to me that there were a couple of specific moments that really got under your skin. One was lack of honest conversations around closure of schools, or in general, those who called for, let's take a more measured approach to lockdowns in general, that these people were vilified. The reaction to the Great Barrington uh, Declaration seemed to irk you. The revelations of the close working relationship on guidance between CDC and the teachers unions and the controversy that erupted in the period following the murder of George Floyd around should protesters be very vigilant around exposure to one another of should they be distancing, should they be more cautious and the like. These were moments that it clearly got under your skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that these things irk me because I, I, suppose they, I suppose they did, even though it's not an emotion, which I'd like to admit to too much. I think what unites my disquiet about these moments is that they all reflected a few things. Number one, they reflected a closing of our mind to a different way of thinking about the issue at hand. When you think about... The Great Barrington Declaration, which I, meant, I say in the book, I don't agree with much of it, but it, it was a wedge to have the conversation. Should there be different ways of dealing with COVID for people at more versus people at less risk? You know, one data point, which I find most people are stunned when I mention, is that during the three years of COVID, 2020, 21, 22, under the age of 65, under age 65, more people died from drug overdose in this country than died from COVID. When I say that, people are a little bit like taken aback by it because, yeah. because three quarters of people who died from COVID were over the age of 65. So when you have such data, it seems to me reasonable to actually have the question, should we be introducing different ways of mitigating right. risk among people yeah. who are at high risk, low risk? Another element in terms of the closing of mind is that all of these instances leaned heavily on the notion that all we care about is health. And that pushed us into hypocrisy. Let's talk about kids for a second and closure of schools. We knew from the beginning, kids are less likely to get COVID. If they get COVID, it's going to be milder. And if they get COVID, they're less likely to transmit it. Which means that we should have said our kids' social, emotional learning is critical. And we will do everything we can to promote that and to preserve schools. But instead... We leaned heavily into saying, well, there might be some risks, so therefore we should close schools and kids can learn at home and all of that. And to me, this feels like hypocrisy on our part because we were allowing one very narrow way of thinking, which was COVID exceptionalism, that all that mattered was keeping the ticker tape of COVID numbers down to get in the way of other things that we care about. And of course, this all came to a head in the context of, as you mentioned, the George Floyd protests, where the issues of racial social justice are so fundamental to public health that that then pushed public health into highlighting the 
inconsistency in its own thinking because public health said, well, this is something that we care about. And yeah, well, then, you know, it's okay to take a risk in this context because this matters so much. And I'm not disagreeing how much it mattered. I'm simply irked, to use your term, by how that highlighted the inconsistency in our thinking. An honest appraisal of the moment should have been saying, we want to mitigate COVID risk, but we will mitigate COVID risk while balancing the trade-offs that we incur by mitigating that risk. And we should be willing to accept some risk by allowing our kids to go to school, just like we're willing to accept some risk because there is a very important racial justice moment, just like we are willing to accept some risk to allow people in their prime working age to continue working, just like we're willing to accept some risk to allow people to visit their dying relatives in hospital because those people care much more about the dignity of their loved one's death than they care about the risk that they may incur in getting COVID. So these moments illustrated how a rigidity of thought and illiberalism did not allow us to see the bigger picture, did not allow us to see the trade-offs, and did not allow us to engage with the population in an honest way that highlighted that risk is never absolute, that we make decisions based on trade-offs all the time, and that a time of crisis is no different. You're getting us towards this question of what the consequences were, and, I, and you've touched on several of them. I want to focus just before we get to the, okay, so what, now what questions. Mm-hmm. On the consequences, I mean, you've enumerated some of them. Trust slips away. Quietly, it erodes. It's, it's highly skewed towards poor rural white populations, although trust eroded among impoverished and marginalized other populations of color in the United States in this period. There's a highly partisan quality to this. The collapse of trust among, among conservative Republicans was 50 points. I mean, it, it was an unprecedented level of collapse, and it has not recovered in that period. Among Democrats, it was 20, 25 points when you look at certain measures around key institutions like CDC. So trust slips away. We're not even conscious so much of how badly this phenomenon has happened. You say there's a drift into authoritarianism and authoritarian practice in an almost unconscious way. The field becomes prey to partisanship and prey to being identified as an affiliate of the Democratic Party versus being politically independent. You say that the field becomes prey to the allure of power and to the access and influence of the media. That is, it pulls folks to being into the cycle of media versus the pursuit of truth and fact, and enamored by the sudden elevation of voice and power in this, in this moment in time. It warped judgment and also inclined, it incented people to drift out of their lane into other areas where they really didn't have much in the way of grounded opinion to offer, but they were being solicited so that it became very problematic there. The other thing you point to that I, I'd like you to talk about is the innate le- structural elitism. In other words, this field is one that is more privileged by levels of education, by economic status, that puts it at a out of reach of accountability in some ways, and also at a considerable distance from the populations that are most profoundly impact when things like a pandemic strikes. So the emotional and material connection is not very strong, and it gets aggravated. That chasm widens in the midst of crisis. Did I capture some of these consequences accurately? You captured it all beautifully, actually. And I'm trying to think of 
how to add to that. Let me add a little bit on the latter part of what you said. And, yeah. and, and I'll add with an exercise that I, I use when I'm speaking to sort of large groups. I say, this was an infectious disease. We knew that, right? It spread from person to person. So we as a society, encouraged by public health, said everybody should stay home. Everybody stay home so we don't touch each other, we don't spread disease, right? Now, and we said work from home. And public health enthusiastically endorsed that. Now, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2019, so this is before COVID, and anybody who's listening to this can go back and find these data, showed the percent of people who are employed who could work from home. And what it shows is as follows. If you're in the top 25% of income earners, you're about 65% able to work from home. People who are in the lower 75% of income earners, which is, of course, the vast majority of the population, only a minority of those people can work from home. In fact, when you get to the lowest 25% of income earners, about 9% of people can work from home. So when we said work from home, what we were effectively saying is we're going to create risk stratification, that those who make more money are going to be at lower risk, and those who make less money are going to be at higher risk. Then my question that I ask audiences is this, and hopefully if people are listening to this, follow it. So assuming you work from home part of the time, and I suspect people who listen to your podcast work from home part of the time, did you ever order anything delivered to you, be it food, be it any items? And the truth is, almost everybody got something delivered to them. Then the question I ask us is, why was it okay for you to lower your risk while people who made less money than you did, disproportionately people of color, were exposing themselves to risk to allow you to work from home? So when we in public health endorsed that, we endorsed an explicit risk stratification that benefits the privileged, which is not only directly in contradiction with the stated principles and values of public health, it also reflects that we did not think deeply enough about what we were espousing and what we were favoring. And, and I suppose that's the kind of thinking that I'm trying to surface in the book and I'm trying to push us to say, let's think about that so we do not make that mistake again. Two questions on the insight around the stratification, elite stratification by economic class and level of education as a very important determinative of outcomes. During this crisis, there was also a certain amount of solidarity that came forward, not just from the public health community, but from the broader community and awareness that the people that were making our lives, those who were more privileged, workable, were taking added risks. And there were expressions of solidarity, some of which took the form of just very generous tipping that happened. But there was also expressions of solidarity. And there were some normative shifts, I think, in consciousness and values in American society that flowed from that. So I do think there were some positive attributes. There was a consciousness of this division and the higher risk borne by those who were in meatpacking plants, those who were keeping our food system running, those who were making our lives comfortable in the delivery trucks and everything else. The other point I want to make is, while a field of public health may have been at the top of a mountain with, with protections around them in the course of this pandemic, and enjoying that privilege and lack of accountability in a way, those who were practitioners at state, local, and territorial levels did not have any insulation or protections Two-thirds of the states in the United States, legislatures have rolled back the authorities of public health. They have been vilified, hounded, death threats, and the like. The field has emptied, in many respects, of skilled workforce seeking early retirement and the like, replenishing the ranks 
is a huge challenge right now. So one of the consequences of what you're describing is that is a crisis of sorts in, at the practitioner level, at the skilled practitioner level of those who are leading in municipalities, states, territorial, leading the way as public health authorities, which really face an enormous challenge at rebuilding. What, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? I'm in complete agreement, and I try to be very careful in the book and uh, also in what I say, and I hope I'm well understood on this, that um, I say all this from a place of deep admiration and respect for the hard work that many have done in public health and continue to do, and during COVID under very adverse circumstances. It is in, in no small part why the book is explicitly forward-looking. I take great pains to say I'm not pointing to particular policies in particular places. I, I really want to highlight larger issues to help us think going forward. The issue of the public health workforce in this country is one of the things that actually made COVID such a tragedy in this country. In my previous book, which was called The Contagion Next Time, I talk about this and I talk about the fact that for the 20 years leading up to 2020, we had had as a country systematically underinvested in public health workforce. And you look at the line, it's a sort of straight line going down. About uh, We spend less than 3% of our health dollars on public health. Most states spend less than $100 per person on public health. And when you do the cost benefit of those, quote, cost savings, it's it's absurd, right? COVID is probably the best estimates are cost this country about $16 trillion, which is a number it's impossible to wrap your brain around until you realize it's about the GDP of China that it cost this country, which of course means that were we to invest a little bit more in the public health infrastructure, public health workforce, it has enormous potential benefits for us. So the term I use in my previous book, The Contagion Next Time, was that we were sitting ducks for COVID because we had so underinvested in public health or public health workforce, coupled with these underlying societal tensions, that the two came together. And when COVID hit, what really drove the tragedy of the pandemic wasn't the coronavirus. Obviously, the coronavirus was the pathogen. But what, what drove it were with the fact that we as a society were ill-prepared. I want to turn in our last portion of this conversation to the so what question. You know, where do we go from here? And you offer some thoughts on this question across the book. You have a very strong appeal for the field of public health to demonstrate greater humility, to engage in more careful and routine listening, show more compassion and courage and reflection. And then you talk about return to the kind of core values of liberalism, as you've painted these earlier. Interestingly, and when you talk about humility, you also cite Joe Rogan in a very interesting way, which I'm sure got people's attention in terms of saying, well, Joe Rogan, you may disagree with him, but one of the things he does on his show is he, he never claims more knowledge than he has. In fact, he goes the reverse direction in saying, I don't know much about this. You've got to explain this to me. And a little bit more Joe Rogan might make public health a little better. And I think that's a, that's a provocative statement, but a very amusing one. And I, I commend you for that. I thought that passage was particularly compelling. But I also think it's much more than that. And here you are, you're a doctorate in public health. You're an MD, uh, you're an author, and you're in a leadership position at a major American university with a major program in School of Public Health. It really begs questions around training and recruitment. It begs questions around curriculum. What are the types of expertise that are now needed in this world that public health operates in, including political acumen, that may, not, may have not been sufficiently 
spotlighted and strengthened in the course of training, particularly in a deeply divided country where public health schools have to really be trained to cross the political divide, and that's not a comfortable proposition for a lot of people. Communications comes across in your book. Communications comes across in the age of disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy thinking, that communications to the public, not to one's peers in public health, but to the public has to be a higher priority. And what does that mean? You talk about accountability. You talk about accountability and elitism. How do you begin to chip away at those problems through a university setting? That's a bunch of questions I realize, but, but it's really the ones that come around that emerge from the kind of very subtle and very carefully constructed argument that you've made, it brings us to the, okay, well, this is the inflection moment. This is the, this is the moment when schools of public health really need to embark on the next generation. The next generation of leaders will be ones who cut their teeth in COVID, not in HIV. This is a big moment. It is a big moment. And of course, it's why I've now, we're going to have three books about this when it's all, all said and done, but then I'll move on from this topic. But you mentioned earlier my blog, where some of these um, essays first yeah. appeared and then modified. And you know, the blog is called The Healthiest Goldfish. Now, let me explain why it's called that. It's sort of based on this uh, metaphor, which you know, many have used, but the David Foster Wallace most famously used it in, uh, in a commencement address, where you know the fish doesn't, rec- doesn't see the water around it, right? And what matters most to the fish's well-being is the water around it. So I've used that metaphor to say that what I care about is the water, the water around the fish, and to make the healthiest goldfish. Now... These issues that you're raising, how do we deal with them? How does one deal with them within the complex ecosystem where we recruit, we train professionals, we train academics, we train practitioners? A lot of this is about how we think and what we talk about. It's about the conversation that we have that shapes how we all think. It is about the water around us as goldfish. So I ask myself, what tools do I have to change how we behave? And by we here, I mean we in public health, and public health is part of society. Yeah. I think one of the most powerful tools is shifting the conversation, shifting the water around the goldfish, which is why we're having this conversation. And what I try to do with the book, and I appreciate you calling out some of the features in it, is start that conversation, is to start the conversation about shifting how we think about the moment. And a point I've made many times in, uh, since in my speaking is you know, COVID was... An enormous tragedy. There is nothing that redeems a tragedy where 1.1 million people die, where it becomes the third leading cause of death in this country for two years in a row, where it sets back life expectancy in this country by about 10 years. That is enormous tragedy. It's people's loved ones, mothers, fathers, grandparents, uncles, aunts, nieces who died, right? But surely we do a disservice to such a tragedy by not learning from it. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get us thinking. You know, I don't know exactly, Steve, how to teach humility. And, you know, humility is a strange thing. You know, once you think you've got it, you've lost it. So one has to be, it's a very slippery concept. But I do know that at least starting the conversation will make people of good conscience who are acting in good faith think about it. Communication. It's very difficult to think about exactly how one communicates in a crisis in a time when you're using a medium that is brand new. Social media really in the context of crisis use was brand new. We communicated with false certitude. We under communicated our doubt. We assumed that people could not handle the truth. When in fact, to paraphrase Jack Nicholson, a few good men, people can in fact handle the truth. And in fact, they resented the fact that we did not communicate with them the truth. And again, 
the book is not backward looking. I'm really not. I try to have capacious compassion for the fact it was a difficult time and we were trying to do complicated things in a difficult time. But looking forward, can we keep these ideas in mind? And my confidence is that most people, most of the time, are trying to do the right thing. And people are drawn to fields like public health or public service really because they want to do the right thing. So I'm trying to change the water of the conversation around us, those of us who are in the field right now and those who are joining the field and will be leading the field in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Thank you. I think that what you've said is terribly important, if only because there is a tendency to turn away. Many have posited that we, you know, we're entering a phase of amnesia or entering a phase of post-COVID of exhaustion, of distrust and skepticism, of division, toxicity and division that motivates people to, to turn away. I'm, I don't believe that's entirely true. I think that actually people are eager to have the kind of conversation that you're calling for. And I think it's really important that people like yourself are making the case, are making, are starting this conversation because it, it does push back on, on that and in a very structured way. Tell me what gives you the greatest optimism and hope at this moment in time. I think the fact that we're having this conversation is what gives me hope. And uh, obviously, this conversation is, is very enjoyable. I've enjoyed talking to you. But um, I mean that as a larger picture. I'm seeing a, an opening to think carefully about what we did and what we should do better. I'm also seeing that COVID, you said this earlier, a few questions ago, that COVID took a lot of ideas that had been present in our society, but not spoken about and elevated them and put them front and center. And if we can combine that, if we can combine recognizing that we have a world where some people are health haves and some are health have nots, and that should not be right. We have a world where we are under investing in our public health infrastructure. We have a world where we have allowed ourselves to align public policy decision-making that matters to our health to align with political parties. These things were all true before COVID. COVID hypercharged them and put them in front of our consciousness. And if we can have these conversations, these things will change. These things will change because there are enough of us, enough of us who want to do the right thing that we will learn from the moment and do better. And, you know, I see the younger generation, you know, as you said, I have the privilege of leading a school. We have 1,200 students with us. I talk to our students regularly. And you know what? The students, they're better. They're better than I, than I am. They are thinking about these things deeply. I want to make sure that uh, when you and I need them, we're in good hands. And I think we are. Thank you so much, Sandro. And congratulations on the publication of Within Reason. And thank you for, for doing what you're doing. I think this is terribly important. And uh, I hope we can uh, carry this conversation forward in the future. Thank you. I would look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.